The following is a conversation with Dr. Mikey Fallon. Mike is a close friend of mine, a confidant, a psychologist, an actor, and a poet. For as long as I've known him, it's felt like I've known him forever. As is the case with each of our conversations, this particular conversation with Mikey is a continuation of the last conversation that he and I shared upon my return from Nepal earlier this year. During this conversation, we speak about humanity, healing, self-forgiveness, the good in people, our American cultural evolution since the 1960s, modern-day hyperconnectivity, and the relationship of unintended consequences between our environment and our expectations. So please, sit back, relax, and enjoy this a conversation with Dr. Mikey Fallon. Mikey Fallon, recently we had gone out for lunch and you had a shirt on that said, Hurt People Hurt People. It captured my attention when you wore it. I, I may have remarked to you about it, but I certainly remarked to myself. I want to know, do you think that healed people heal people? Yeah, man. I think that's part of why, you know, so that t-shirt, so years ago, I came across that saying when I was at a Hot Topic store. And uh, I, was, I was like shopping at Hot Topic and I come across, you know, some button that said hurt people, hurt people. And it became this piece of one of my characters in my show, you know, and uh, just talking about how a lot of times we forget we're in the midst of a tragedy. Let's take a school shooting. Let's take, you know, um, you know, Ubaldi down in Texas there, right? That what I'm always fascinated by, and it's not to give excuse or to give a pass to somebody who does this horrific act, but it's like, man, could we have seen this earlier on? Could we have seen this this person in this much pain, you know, and, and where it leads to? And uh, if that pain gets stuck, I always feel that it has to go somewhere, you know, it has to go. It's either going to go against themselves or go out to others. And so, you know, with that, with the T-shirt, what I've found is fascinating, though, when I wear that T-shirt, especially when I wear it at an airport, people will stop me. And I and I and I almost look at it as like a Rorschach test because they will say comments to me that will let me know, like, where they're coming <laughs> what that from. that means so some, to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because sometimes people will stop me and they'll go, I don't want to deal with you. You're trying to hurt me. And I'm like, that's what you just read? Yeah. <laughs> That's what you read in my t-shirt, you know, and it's a really, I, and here's the thing. I didn't even know that people would have differing reactions to it than I had. And that was one of the things that I, I start to realize that any symbol that we have, whether it's a t-shirt, whether it's a hat, whether it's a piece of clothing or, or a job title or a, a political view, that people see this and they automatically sum up who we are. Yeah. You know? And and that's that's the part that I was really like intrigued by by that. But what I also realized is that, you know, when I wear that t-shirt, there are some people who are in pain. And what they end up saying to me is, I had this one guy, I was at a rest stop and he goes, uh, he had this real like his face was kind of like, uh, you know, like you could tell that like, he was thinking and he was, he was a little bit bothered, but he wasn't really sure what to say to a complete stranger. And then he looks at me and he goes, I, I just want to know some, I just want to tell you something about that t-shirt. I want you to know too, that sometimes we actually save people too. That's incredible. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And I looked at him and without missing a beat, I go, I know. And you didn't even think that we had something in common, did you? Right. And so, like, you know, it was like it was like I quickly like I just had the perfect words to say to this guy that probably looked at me and, you know, we looked we looked very different. Like sure. he looked like he was, you know, and, and he looked at me and he just like nodded his head and we just kept we had this moment with each other, you know, and that was that was cool. That's so. Awesome. Yeah. But but I do think healing. Yeah, absolutely. Healed people or people who are about the healing definitely reach out to heal because you, you only can have from your experience of what you've been through. So you said in your shows, so what exactly are your shows? What do you do? Yes. Yeah. So I combine uh, my acting background with uh, my psychology degree. I have a, a doctorate in clinical psychology and um, acting and psychology plus storytelling is kind of like my, my push when I go to schools or conferences or colleges and what I try to do with an audience is get them to be engaged on a level to look at things that they've 
looked at for so long that they've never turned it to another angle and then asked themselves, like, what am I looking at now? Now, could that be anything? Yeah, any experience. Like, I, I really challenge people to, um, I think one of the one of the prime metaphors that I end up using in my, in my uh, presentations is the Japanese teacup and how growing up with teacups in my home that have handles on them, I grew up believing that teacups needed handles in order to be a teacup. And then when I started eating at sushi restaurants, all the teacups had no handles. And I was left like, what do I do? Well, well, yeah, what's going on? You know, so one night I'm sitting at a restaurant and I asked a sushi restaurant, asked the, the waiter when he brought the tea, I said, what's wrong with your teacups? <laughs> and this guy just looks at me and he did the best thing. And this is part of what I try to do when I get into a discussion with someone that I may not have an agreement. We may have a disagreement. And he just, he didn't get defensive and he smiled and he, he relaxed me by smiling. And then he laughed a little bit, which eased me more. And then he just quietly, so as not to embarrass me in front of other customers, he said, if it's too hot to hold, it's too hot to drink. And till that point, I had never thought about it. You know, that teacups don't need handles. That actually what you need to figure out is if you can actually drink the tea inside the cup. <laughs> and instead of burning your mouth, ask your hands, what, what, what does it say, you know? And so that was just like, wow. And so I ended up using this 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 conversation that I had with that guy at the restaurant as this metaphor of like, that's what I want to really understand with people. Like this podcast is a great example, right? It's my temperature that you're trying to get at. It's not my handle. You're not like, okay, right. now it's Mikey Fallon. He's a black guy. That's a, like, right, right? right. And so we get so stuck on that handle part that we end up missing out on what really connects us, which will be in our stories and our conversations and the things that, you know, that, that have made us react a certain way to this world. We were talking about a trip that I had to Nepal. And I had actually said that I feel like I'm home no matter where I go. And you said the same thing, that you feel the same way. I think that people are inherently good. I, I, I do. I think that we're, we're generally very, very charitable. We're very social. We're very community-based. I think that even the people that like to be alone still appreciate the value of, of being part of something. That sense of, of, of feeling home no matter where I go just makes me think that people generally want to help other people. What perspective do most people hope to change when they're introduced to your storytelling? Is it is it generally from one area or another? Is it typically a kind of abuse? Is it typically a kind of you know mistake that they make that everybody regrets? What do you see a lot of? It's a mix of things. I think one of the big things, though, that people, when they come up to me after and they have a conversation, whether they be students or adults, they will say, I connect to what you were talking about because it reminded me of part of my life mm -hmm. i mean that's a, a kind of that that kind of phrase of like you really got a part of who i am and a part of what i've been through and so i think what people look for is the ident identification of i'm not alone on this planet how can i build community when i feel alone you know and i think that's like what you were saying right there like i do believe that people are mostly good like i'm always fascinated when i watch like programs or documentaries on like serial killers or people who have done these horrific acts that the one thing they want people to know is like i'm not evil and even though i look at some of the acts i'm like yo that was pretty evil dude <laughs> you know but to them they really want to make sure that their humanity is seen as well and so I, I hear that. And I and that's why when I see people, I think one of the things is like, regardless if I don't agree with the position or, or what, that we may have a disagreement in how we see the world, that I realize that people ultimately want to be, number one, understood, number two, accepted, and, and number three, feel less alone. Like we don't, we don't want to feel this isolation. Even if we're comfortable being with ourselves, we still want to also feel like, Outside of that, there is this sense of this human experience that we're going through together. Did you say doctorate in clinical psychology? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a lot of people that, that were in my program for clinical psychology, they 
they ended up going into more private practice. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't do that part of it. That wasn't my comfort zone. If I weren't doing what I'm doing and speaking where I, in the different presentations, I would see myself working in like a psychiatric hospital or a teenage group home. Like I'm really drawn to that. And so clinical psychology really just works with all areas that if you think about whether it's in therapy or uh, hospital settings where people have psychiatric needs they want to address, but not, and it makes a distinction between like, for example, school psychology, which is obviously focused in school, organizational psychology, which is for businesses more and uh, how to function an organization. So an organization can function better. The other part about clinical psychology is that it's not research-based as much. It's more practice, right? It, you know, interacting. Well, I've always understood the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Is a psychiatrist can write a prescription, okay, and and that that's a big difference. But but I know that that doesn't encapsulate that. I know it's two very different fields. Um, one is obviously more medical and, and pharmacological and, and and so what is psychology is that more behavioral what how does that slice yeah it yeah so so that that's right right so you're right on track right so a psychiatrist what the way that i was always kind of understood it is like a psychiatrist is a medical doctor with two years of psychology and where a psychologist is really just all psychology and like we can't like as a clinical psychologist even if i were licensed i can't prescribe medication right okay and when you say clinical, that's basically that's that's having an office and people come to you and they you know they're laying on the couch and, and what somebody would p typically see is is a psychologist. That's what you're doing. That's what your office is. That's what your practice is. Right, right. That's one one use of it. A lot. Sometimes I I had, I had uh, fellow classmates who you know they run the, the department of psychiatry you know even though they're clinical psychologists like i have one one guy i went to school with who he's at albert einstein in new york and he's running the department of psychiatry even though he's a clinical psychologist but a lot of times it's really just with the treatment protocol for people who are expressing psychological needs or, or need help what is what what do you think the crux of the human condition is? Okay, so there's a part of it that for me is definitely built on the the past experiences, the relational experiences that we've had growing up. But I knew when I was in grad school that I was drawn to like, okay, I'm working with these tough populations, whether kids who grow up in the foster care system, for example. And so if you have a kid who's setting fires and burning down things and burning down potentially their home. Um, I don't really care about the mother issues at that point. I want to figure out a way, how do we stop that kid from burning down the home? You know? right. And so there, there is definitely a part of me that's more drawn to like action oriented as opposed to just like, let's explore this, you know, where this started, you know, and, and it's useful. Like I, I love that as a intellectual journey, but as far as a practical way of that me of handling a situation, I'm more action oriented. I'm like, okay, let's, let's figure out a cognitive and a behavioral plan that we can do that will change the behavior. Mm -hmm. And then we can worry about all that other stuff. You know, a, a practice that I've recently gotten into every night before I go to bed, I stop. And after I say my prayers and I talk to the universe and I give my thanks and I do that every night, I start to think about what I did backwards from the moment mm. that i laid down you know there's it's not it's not a very straight line it's it's you back up and then you kind of scoot ahead a little bit and then you back up you know you'll say well i laid down well right but after you laid down you put your head on the pillow and your arm underneath the pillow you know and then you threw your leg back over right okay so what did i do before i laid down so it's kind of like this two step forward like three steps back i've gotten to bringing it all the way back to my first memory of the morning and i feel like it's a tremendous memory experiment or even practice but furthermore what it actually lets me do is it lets me reframe the entire day without sitting on the hood of this race car as it was driving around the track and everything was life or death so when we go through our day you know however many percent of our day is just daily habits and reflex and things like that you know the way we put our seatbelt on we get in a car like all of that shit just happens and it happens extremely quickly. And we make snap judgments. We make snap decisions. 
that actually do end up programming us going forward in, in, in our future decisions. So in going back and being able to kind of just like relay that wallpaper again and make sure that there's no bubbles in it and that it's nice and smooth and instead of feeling like I behaved that way because I was in a rush and, and didn't have an alternative, maybe perhaps I was being insensitive and I wasn't thinking with a clear mind. And, and you actually get to rewrite your journal for that day in, in not just yeah. in a, not just in a, in a practical way, but in a, in a third party kind of experiential way. And in doing that, I feel like I've been able to avoid a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. I'm naturally a very anxious person. I'm naturally, I carry a lot of stress with me. I don't know if it's just because of the way that I'm wired or what. There's always a lot of synapses firing in my head. And sometimes it's a good thing. And sometimes it's a bad thing. But to go back, I'm actually able to rebuild my day in such a way. For me, that's a, that's a great practice. But for you, what are some practices that would be easy enough for people to do kind of while they're laying down and in a relaxed state? Are there certain mirroring practices that, that you do or you do, you've done? I love that, by the way, that, that whole reflection about it. It kind of, before answering the, you know, your specific question, I saw this bumper sticker up in Canada once and it said, let's all make better mistakes tomorrow. <laughs> and, and I and, and I loved the bumper sticker so much because it wasn't this idea of I want to try to get it perfect. It was just like I just want to try to get it better. <laughs> you know, I just want to do a little better tomorrow than I did today, and a little better today than I did yesterday. Right? Yeah. But it's that same piece of reflection that you're talking about. You're forcing your brain to do what we typically don't do, and that is to slow it down. Right. And so one of the things that I actually in a reflective, not so much like I tell people in the, it, like when you're going to sleep, but throughout your day, like how can you stop your brain from automatically firing? Like how do you slow it down enough to say, okay, I'm talking to this person right now. Uh, my feet are on the ground and to be present in that, in that mm -hmm. moment, you know, and that's, and, that, and I think that's one of the very similar to that, that's thing that you do before you're going to sleep. It's like taking account that no moment is not at least examined in some way, you know, like yeah. I think that that's, that has become something for me where even in high school that I started doing, like when I started walking, I started going to cemeteries when I was younger because I found it to be the most peaceful place for me. And even during the pandemic, it was the one place that I knew when everyone was kind of going back outside, I knew it was the one place that no one would want to be. You know? <laughs> well, so, I mean, you got that right. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and so I started walking, I walk around, and then what happens is I look at these tombstones, and, you know, a lot of times people feel the sadness of the young kids who pass away, the ones who are like five, four, you know, whatever, that age. And there is a sadness to that. But in my moments of reflection, I can't help but to stop and think like some of these people who lived to like 95, 98, how many of those years they existed, did they actually live like and how many days did they live and not just one about their routine where we just forget all these parts. I know that I forget a lot in my life, you know, like I had one thing that happened um, within the last year. My son, Christopher's mom, had sent a video. My son, Christopher, he's 11 right now. She sent this video when he did his piano recital, and he was four or five years old. And, uh, you know, she sent me the video of when I was there. And after he got his award, he came running up to me, and he jumped in my lap, and he's like, show me the award. And he's laughing, and I'm hugging him, and I'm kissing. And it's this beautiful moment on video. But, dude. I looked at that video and I'm like, was I there? I did not recognize there was nothing about that moment that was in my recall. Yeah. And and I and I felt sadness about it. You know, so here I am looking at this video and as cute and beautiful as this video is, and it was at the time, I realized that I was so bitter in that part. I know what was happening. I was pretty bitter that here I didn't want to have this child, but mm -hmm. I'm trying to establish a relationship, but then I missed out on multiple years because I was so angry at how it happened, you know? And that's, that's the part that I don't want to get stuck in, you know? And I, and I want to like, look at my life experiences as like, yeah, these things have happened, you know, and not, not to be like, well, I'm just mad about it. So I, I want to regret it. I think 
it, it, it's funny. I, I started saying this as a joke, kind of, and then the more I say it, the more I realize that it's actually exceedingly true, is that the answer to a lot of our problems that we see that nobody else sees, I feel like is self-forgiveness. You've got to forgive yourself for making those stupid choices. You've got to forgive yeah. yourself for doing it when it was obviously a poor choice. You've got to forgive yourself and realize that, like, okay, in spite of all that shit, you're here right now. And not only are you here right now, but every there, there is no objective, objective you. There's only a subjective you. Every single person on this planet understands you and would describe you as being slightly different than even you describe yourself. And right. we carry all of our biases with us. Honestly, I think that there's a pretty strong argument that of all of the people on this planet that know us, we're our own self-impression is probably the most least accurate out of everybody's because it's designed to be. And I think that because of that, we, we should give ourselves a lot of license to the past and the mistakes of the past because our impression of ourselves is always changing we're focusing on, on on different words or different phrases on different days and different weeks when you know the kids that i coach on a soccer team only hear me talk about coaching soccer stuff so coach matt is this guy every single person understands you now you don't see all of those things you could right. go you could go back and actually if you had a perfect memory which we don't but if you had a perfect memory, and fortunately, phones are expandable memory for us, right? You can go through the gallery and you could, if you chose to, view only the pictures of you being a good dad. And as a matter of fact, as far as that reality is concerned, you're batting a thousand. Because out of the 10 videos and 10 interactions that you've seen with past you, those 10 are actually a really good parent and a really good dad. And you deserve the credit for that. So I guess there's a, there's your shift in, in right. perspective. But I feel like all of humanity exists in every single one of us. And, and I do believe it. I believe that there's a Jeffrey Dahmer in everybody. I believe that there's a Mother Teresa in everybody. What slices of this film are you paying attention to? Is somebody else misrepresenting those slices and creating a narrative that, that shouldn't exist? Or are you being, you know, overly selective in, in, the, in the frames that you're choosing to view? At 43, at me, um, you're about my age. <laughs> it's, it's all the same. It's which yeah. parts of your past do you want to be remembered as and begin to remember yourself as those kinds of people because they all exist. And subjective reality prevailing, if you're going to choose your own adventure, you might as well just pick one that you like, right? Right, right. No, I like that, man. I like that, like, the idea that, yeah, no one sees... The Mikey Fallon who's driving by himself, and then you know, like it, it's like a di it is like a different person at times. Or time. if I'm listening yes. to a certain music, you know, certain song, then my mood changes or how my energy changes. You know, like yeah. if I'm listening to something that's a rap song, I'm listening to a metal song. Like my energy, you know, I was driving around and on my my shuffle and my my uh, i iPod. Right, iPod in my car, like this old school iPod. I have all these songs, like five thousand songs on them. Five Finger Death Punch pops up, and I'm like, and I'm like driving, and I'm and I'm feeling the aggression of right. the song, you know. And I could just it, it 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 alters that, but people don't see me when I'm standing on stage. That's that's not the same person that they're seeing right then. But and, you know, right, like, and and if it was, that would really be who you are to that person and they are yep. and they are yep. just as right as anybody else yes and 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 it's so there therefore i think it's critical that people forgive themselves and and listen we can all forgive ourselves for doing something that like when thinking about forgiving yourself for something serious nobody likes to be reminded of that one thing okay everybody's got that one thing that they hope the universe forgets right and and if and nobody likes to be reminded of it i'm sorry for bringing it up so you can be reminded of it now i don't like being reminded of it either but the fact is is that what difference does it make because it really yep. it really doesn't if you were to look at the chips how they fell right now this very moment again you get to pick your own adventure you get to choose and 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 you get to choose every minute and like you said you know if, if you're going to make better decisions tomorrow you know better mistakes tomorrow if on average each day you made successively better mistakes, I think you you probably end this game pretty pretty well ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So yeah. No, I agree, yeah.
what part what what brought you to what part of people brought you to psychology was it healing in yourself that you were looking for or the ability to heal somebody else you know so originally <laughs> i was actually sharing this today in a presentation that i in my junior year of high school i'm 17 years old and i don't want to go to the cafeteria i i, I just for lunch so i go to the library and I'm sitting there just looking at a bunch of different psychology textbooks. And I come across this study that was done where they used the test subjects had to drink eight gallons of water in a 24 hour period. It's a lot of damn water, right? So, water. you know, and my thought as I'm reading this was like, wow, did any like serious medical conditions happening, you know, with that drinking that much water because it is in excess and but it wasn't one of the things they noted in a humorous way in the article was that they just had to be close to a bathroom because they were peeing quite a bit, you know, and right. that was really big. But the other thing they found, which I didn't know, was that it it shifted around the brain's chemistry and it altered the pH levels so that you would become intoxicated. And so I was 17 years old and I was like, wow. Wait, wait. So you would become intoxicated? Yeah. Your pH levels in your brain, they get altered. And so... What happens when you become intoxicated is that it's shifting the pH levels in your brain, right? The acid versus the the pH. So, you know, so and I didn't I didn't know the chemistry of it until I'm reading this, and I was like, but water will do the same thing in excess, and you become intoxicated. So here I am, 17 years old. I'm reading this in the library at lunch break, and I'm like, I could have been getting drunk <laughs> off of water for. <laughs> <laughs> And so I'm going around telling people about this, but it, it was like the start of learning something that other people did not know yeah. was something that drew, I mean, and you're, you're like this too. You love information. You love digging information, you know, growing the brain, not to like show off or to brag, but to really just like, what is this going to, you know, what, what am I learning about myself or other people? That's what happened on that day. Like, it, it was like, okay. And then I, I was taking a psychology course that year in high school, and we saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest in the class. And I started crying when I saw the mistreatment of people who had been diagnosed with mental illnesses, and they were hospitalized, and how at that time in the 60s, they would do lobotomies and just like what I would call torture, really, for the human torture on people who had schizophrenia or had bipolar or had some psychotic, you know, episode. And I just said, I, I want to do something about this. And I wasn't even dealing with my own mental health at that mm. time. I was dealing with, I want to help the other people, not knowing that really I had to start with myself right. at that time, you know? And, and it was like, yeah, really powerful moment. So the sixties, <clears throat> we were treating a lot of people very differently in the sixties, sixties, was a very different time. I feel as though, like, looking back, it's almost natural to to expect that the way we behave towards each other would change. People are allowed to get angry, you know? There, there's been a long time that, mm. that people haven't been allowed to get angry. And I mean this in a general sense. I mean, naturally, I think that there are different groups of people that different times have better reasons than others. In terms of the scope of allowable human social behavior, I, I don't condone anybody hurting anybody else or, or anything like that, but I feel like the margin has gotten much smaller and the line has just become a lot more de defined in terms of people being able to express themselves in some way. And whether it is creatively, whether it is through taking on an entirely different identity, whether it is being angry, people are really if not encouraged to express themselves in very dynamic and in strong ways. And, and, and largely, I think it is taking a turn towards nonviolent, right? I, I think in terms of like the psychology, the psychiatry, we don't do electric shock therapy anymore. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the way that we treat our, our fellow man, I like to think and believe that from what I've seen that we're treating each other a whole lot better, actually. And then we've got a lot of people standing up for the people that can't stand up for themselves. We obviously have a very different perspective on the matter. Do you feel as though there's at least been a shift in that direction? The psychology included the 60s and, and went forward the cuckoo's next. And their depiction, do you feel as though we have began to turn in that direction? Are you feeling optimistic about that? You know, I feel like and for some of it, right, especially okay, if you focus on the field of psychology and psychiatry, some of the field, what they did, and which I, I, I do appreciate, is that they didn't just throw out everything of what they were doing. 
but they were asking themselves, how can we still use this? Because we do see something positive out of it to be more effective. So with severe cases of depression, for example, they will still do shock therapy to the brain. They'll still do, they won't cut off the frontal lobe like they used to, but the, you know, putting the, the mouthpiece in someone's mouth and shocking their brain. It's still a practice, you know, and and for especially for uh, behaviors that can cross over more into what they call the psychotic behaviors, you know, and uh, and so it's like they they still have it, but they how they have adjusted and refined it. It's like anything, right? Whether you're talking about a car or anything else that we you know we don't just say okay, well this car breaks down too soon, so let's just scrap the idea of cars, right? right? So we say how do we build upon that? And that's that's what I I feel that that's what I like. I do like the idea of appreciating where things were and the shifts that they have gone through to become where they are now. Like, and, uh, and I'm definitely, definitely drawn to that, that part as well. Um, and so in psychology, yeah, there's just definitely a lot, a lot of different ways that, you know, for example, in the sixties, they also did a lot of, L there's this one guy, um, Timothy Larry, Larry did, you know, the LSD stuff. You know, and, 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 you know, when I was in grad school, people were just like, wow, yeah, it was a really wild time. People were doing that. But now today, one of the number one treatments is psychedelics, you know, that they're using psychedelics again as part of in a very controlled environment setting. But it has shown to be very effective uh, with, you know, whether it's like a form of LSD or mushrooms to be very effective with people who have severe anxiety or depression. They use it a lot for end of life care, um, terminally ill patients, because it helps them cope. Now, if you change somebody's reality and cope with squirrels chewing my leg off, if you if you make me think something else is happening. I'm familiar with Leary, and um, I personally think that <laughs> uncontrolled use of psychedelics is often a whole lot more productive than controlled use of psychedelics. That's my own, that's my personal opinion there's a lot of trials now and i guess science that that back up that these things do help rewire the brain right there's been a lot of experiments with mdma right. and and ketamine ketamine's been around for a very long time mm -hmm. um and and not in the capacity that it is now and and not that you know i don't think that we're going to find out in 10 years that like crack cures glaucoma but i i right. think that they're Crack also has a very different origin than psilocybin and, yeah. and some of these other places. But there are a lot of natural remedies for a lot of the, I guess, the psychosis of common people. I mean, do you think that hyperconnectivity is part of the problem or do you think it just exacerbates part, certain elements of it? What do you mean by that when you say um... so? Like, so we're social, naturally social, right? We mm -hmm. we form hierarchical chains of command when there's enough of us around, and order needs to be established, right? We're self-organizing. Do you think that being able to connect in such a way, like like this, like, dude, all I had to do was just sit in a different chair, and I get to experience for most intents and purposes a conversation face-to-face conversation with you it didn't take any resources it didn't take any you know right. i didn't have to walk or you know fire up the engine or warm up the horse like you're just right here so mm -hmm. being able to do this and connect with thousands of other people where before it would take a tremendous amount of resources are we hyper connected are we able are we supposed to be able to mm -hmm. work at that kind of bandwidth or is there a reason why most of our communication happens by mouth, which is very slow and very clunky and not very precise, especially when you're dealing across borders. But in terms of like input, we can input all of this information from so many senses, like millions of times a second. But output, mm -hmm. output pales in comparison to the amount of information that I'm able to take in. So in communicating and being able to connect so quickly to so many different people all at one time, that hyperconnectivity, do you feel as though that is the problem? Or do you feel as though that hyperconnectivity is just fueling other parts of what that problem is? That's a great question. I, I think that it's definitely causes problems like the the idea of the overstimulation the, the the fact that we want everything accessed immediately i think about the times where like i didn't drive and like i was a teenager in my parents home and i i didn't want to wait for them to to be late to go to church right so i would just go walk the mile you know to to church in my in my dress shoes and all but i'd, I'd walk but in those moments 
it slowed things down. So I was actually paying attention yeah. to all that was around me much more than can what happened now. You're right. Like what we take in is so much greater than what we can, you know, what we actually put out. And, and because of that, I think it also hinders some of our creativity, right? Because we're being fed in, in some ways, if you allow yourself just to be fed by everything, receiving, 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 and you're not trying to output as much as you're receiving or, or output at least a greater amount that you're than just receiving. I think that's part of what, what's happening. So like, I try to stay away. For example, people have said, why don't you make TikTok videos? You'd be, it'd be great. You know, you do shows in schools. You should make these TikTok videos. And it's, I don't have nothing against TikTok as a general idea, but I watch what happens when people who have TikTok accounts, they can't leave it alone. Like they have to constantly be seeing like this, this next person. And, and, you know, some of my friends will send me this video they thought was hysterical. And I'm like, this is the stupidest thing that I've been, this is like a waste of your energy while we're here, you know, but it's like this idea that we want, I think one of the things I realized that people want to be heard again and be connected and feel connected. And in one great way, it's made the world smaller. Right. So like, uh, you know, like it's not just the town that you live in or the state that you live in. It's the world that you're living in. on. The flip side is that we've gone to so many symbols of what we're feeling that we don't even know how we feel. Anymore. That is a brilliant, brilliant talk more about that. Yeah. So I, I'll give you a, a story that actually happened just a couple of days ago. I was in a text conversation with one of my friends, Jackie, and she had said something that I found to be pretty humorous. But instead of writing like, oh, that's really funny or anything like that, I just put two emojis. One was like this smiley face and the other one was this smiling, laughing face that had a like sweat drop from the head do you what, what do you interpret that have you seen that emoji by the way the one with the smile this big smile face and then it's like a like a little sweat drop from the head like coming off well like you're laughing so hard you're sweating okay so so all right so that's how i see it now this is gonna be this, this was fascinating so i send this i just send those two emojis to her and she writes back all right why are you sweating to my response <laughs> and i'm like I found it hysterical. So, I, you know, it made me laugh. And when I laugh hard, I start to sweat. And so, you know, so I, I, I said that to her and she didn't respond. But then I was like, okay, well, maybe I had this wrong. <laughs> so I didn't even Google. I, I, I text my girlfriend the next day. I'm like, what does this emoji mean to you? And she's like, well, it's like if you did something, you're kind of embarrassed by it. And it's like. Oof, wow, that's what you see. And I said, that's so interesting. I said, now I understand why that response. I said, but here's what I realized. It's like, even the symbols of emojis are based on our experiences of who we are. The reason why I see it as laughing so hard I sweat is because I shaved yeah. my head. And so, and you too, right? And so here's the thing. So once we start laughing, yep. we get emotional. They're beads of sweat that will come off. If you have hair, you don't feel any of that. And so I interpreted the, the emoji completely different than somebody who has hair will interpret that emoji, you know? And and the other part is, if I'm really embarrassed, right. it's rare that I'll laugh at it. I feel anger. I feel all the, right. these other emotions, but my face is not laughing, you know? And, and I realize... All of that is based on my experiences. So that's brilliant. And and to me, that goes back to the whole, there's really no objective version of ourselves, right? And there's there's talk about, you know, object, no yep. objective reality and so on and so forth. And sure, and sir, if there's certainly no objective reality, then it's logical that there's really then no objective anything, right? No objective version of us. Just kind of the messed right. up way that my head thinks about it. But if we're interpreting those symbols wrong, well, not even wrong. It's just that we're misinterpreting it. We're, we're doing it based on our own realities. And since our realities right. are different, it's almost a good thing that she said, why did you send me that picture? Because at least now you can explain yourself. It's great. I, I would never have thought about it, dude. I would never have thought about it or considered that someone was reading it differently well than, then what like, that was like i i it didn't cross my mind did not cross my mind that way you know it's frightening too because children would really be learning these interactions and more on a face-to-face -face basis and being able to read facial cues and body language and things like that it does them a disservice because they're not able to do that i think that technologically speaking it was inevitable so it is something that we're going to have to get used to 
it's beyond slang. It's a whole new, it's, it's, it's virtually a whole new language. So there's no going back. There's no way that it, that you could walk this back and that's fine. Do you think that social media is turning people into somebody else? Or do you think it's just like the lottery? Like it doesn't change who you are. It just enables you to be more of who you were born to be. I actually think your first part, I think it is changing people. You know, it, it, even with the idea of filters, right? So, like, the, there, there are some of my friends who do not their their view of how they actually look. It, it, even when we look, so even prior to the internet, right? So we look in the mirror; it's an altered view that you're seeing of yourself. You know that that's what's pleasing to your eyes. So that's why when I did photography, if I was taking a picture of you, what I would do when I was developing it is that I would reverse it. Because that's the way you would see yourself, mm-hmm. you know? And so it would look strange to me, but it would look normal to you, you know? And and so when I'm right, right. giving a gift to someone, I'm like, oh, okay, this is what they'd want to see about themselves. But that times whatever, you know, increment, it's like, I feel that there are friends of mine that have filters they use that they don't really know what they look like anymore. Because it's become what they look like. It's this image of like it's a it's their it's the they they become a caricature of themselves or an emoji of themselves, and they receive the compliments. It strokes you know it's like okay, the endorphins are released, and it's like okay, that makes me look good. So that must be the way I look. You know, I think we all have people like that, and and I and you know we love them just as much as we love anybody else. But even so, men or women, like we do, we want to have this like best self image of projected out there. Like I I hate when I see a picture where someone catches me natural, but gets me at an angle that I hate looking at yeah. myself. Yeah. But then I realized, like, I'm like, that's what the way people see me. Like, oh, my goodness. You know, and then I start going in my head of like, OK, well, they're not going to catch me off guard like that. again, You know, and <laughs> so there, there is that whole thing that we all I think for a lot of people struggle with of can't be like, OK, I just I just accept myself completely the way I am. Like, it's just more that I realize that I don't. Some of the most confident people that I've ever met are some of the people who grew up under some of the worst circumstances Mm -hmm. where I would think that the odds are really placed against them, whether it be like a single person home or a low income, no income home, even with a single parent, some of the strongest people I've ever met have come out of homes like that. And what is interesting is that I think about it and as a parent, I wonder, even though my children are, are comparatively more fortunate in many respects than than those examples, as a person, as a human being, I want my children to have that same kind of confidence. Like you're not gonna tell me you're not gonna tell me that this doesn't look good. You're not gonna tell me that this is shitty. This is my best, and my best is always good enough. Whether it's the way that you look, the way that you act, the way you behave, the way you study, the way you test, the way you perform, whatever it is. Like your best is if it's worth trying and it's worth trying with everything that you've got, then, you know, it's worth sticking around and seeing how well it compares to others. I've always admired the confidence that sometimes parents, single parents that that potentially against the odds have been able to instill in their in their children and watch how that manifests do, have you seen similar? I mean, you know what I'm talking about? I, well, you know, I, I've seen, here's the thing though. I've, I was going to say that I've seen, even within the same household, one person go one way, the other person go another way too. You know, when the okay. siblings like, so there, there is a part of, like, I think about my brother and myself, like we grew up in the same house, even though we, we, we you could say we had the same experience, but we didn't, we had different experiences and interpreted them differently. And um, he he uses his pain and takes it out on himself and feels like I'm I'm crap, you know, I'll never do anything in this world. But if you saw him like, you know, he was the if you were making a bet between myself and my brother when we were younger, my parents would say, like, we just never saw it coming with Roy. Like we we thought you would be the one that we were going to really have to worry about, you know, and and I just think that. It's also that individual and how they interpret the circumstances that they're going through. You know what? And I think that that's fair, Uh, obviously. So expectations, right? That's what I would, that's how I would interpret that is what would their expectations be? And, And I don't know. I feel like those are probably set in some ways like in utero. 
somehow, whether mm-hmm. it's by temperature or sound and time of day. I feel like there's so much nuance to our conditioning that it happens as soon as our senses are turned on. You know, we begin making models of the environment around us and trying to navigate a way through them, even if we're still, we haven't even been you know, introduced to this world yet. I agree with that, by the way, too, that, that that's a, like, like, and hold your thought for a second, like that, that part of, like my brother, for example, is born July 31st. I was born in March. I was born in the, the darkness of winter. So there's this part of me that accepts that part of the year that is depressing and dark and you know that that part where it's not i don't expect like my brother i think he expects that life should have taken care of him better you know like i was born in the sunlight i was born in this 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 beautiful time of of the year and where i i sort of like having my head like when winter comes around like oh now i feel now others can feel what i usually feel which is that 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 space of just being in that i don't think that that's crazy at all so my birthday on may 26th my birthday falls on or around memorial day weekend every single year Okay, I have certain expectations as they relate to the celebration of my my person in my life and my day and my birthday. Okay, Mm -hmm. where it's Memorial Day weekend, it's the kickoff to the summer. My 21st birthday was on a Friday. You know, it was beautiful weather like it was it's Mm -hmm. never going to snow on my birthday. Um, There's never going to be a hurricane on my birthday. But in March, like, okay, so my daughter, her birthday is in January and her fourth or fifth birthday, we got 33 inches of snow. First snow of the season, end of January, 33 inches of snow. She runs the risk of having a very short, cold, windy, blustery celebration. For me, I do feel as though some of my character precipitates from the impression of myself on my birthday i mean i you and you share this i mean so your birthday is at the end of winter you know that once it gets cold it'll start getting warm then your birthday will be so like there's that period of time you know it's never right right hot as balls on your birthday um it could yeah so there's like uncertainty kind of baked into the first i'd say three years of your life right each day is going to be different each time it comes around yeah and how we have those attachments to like that part when when it rolls around to beginning of march like it's like still in the thick of winter you know said so march comes in like a lion out like a lamb well i'm in the lion part you know like i'm <laughs> in that, that part where it's like it's cold and it's what i'm drawn but it, interestingly enough i'm drawn to that part you know because that's what's familiar to the marking of my existence it's baked in yeah it's yep. baked in yeah and I'm sure there were moments where you were in utero leading up to your day of birth that you did maintain levels of consciousness and it did feel colder than it did normally mm-hmm. because it's January, it's February, you know, yep. Mo- mom had to run out to the car to grab, you know, to grab her wallet. It was freezing out. You felt that. That's something I didn't feel because three months before my birthday, it was it was still warm. Right. So I wonder, I wonder how much there is to that. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've never gone down the rabbit hole fully on that, but that's that's right. such an interesting part, right? Like, yeah, like what? I mean, if it influences, right? If it's if it's part of your model, it influences your behavior some way or or has. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you a question. I appreciate you coming on. I ask all my guests this question. I, I want to <clears> ask you, what does being human mean to you? In a short version of it, to me, it's it's the idea of I think about it in the sense of how am I different than other living beings? You know, And so I think the part of the reflection that is not just my own survival that I'm, I'm here for, but it's like the reflection of, you know, just the thoughts of like, what is my role here on this planet? What am I supposed to be doing? What am I, you know, or, or what impact am I going to make? And then the, the other human part is the idea that really to look out for others that are trying to find their ways, you know, and, and, and to be present of, to be just, conscientious of that and and to live that truth rather than speaking about that truth you know and i do speak about it too but i had this great conversation with my daughter she's doing her first year in college she's down in north carolina and she calls me like in the first couple weeks and she says dad my ra and my in my dorm here he's i know he's a senior in college but it's like he's an older person. Like he's he's like a father figure to a lot of us here. And I said, really? I said, yeah. She's like, yeah, I, I, I was trying to understand why. And 
And he started speaking about his life. And, and I realized, Dad, it's because he reminds me exactly of you. You know, and she says this thing and she's really like really passionate about it. And I was like, how so? And she goes, well, he always goes out of his way to really help other people who need the help. It's like, so if you had to go to the store to get food because you're starving and you're up at three in the morning, but you don't want to walk by yourself because it's dark out there on the campus, he'll get up and he'll walk with you so you don't have to be alone. And, and then she goes, and then it was so cool. And then she goes, and then dad, he never gives up on people. And and I I started tearing up, dude. You know, you like it was to, just sure. like yeah, yeah. But it was like one of these things where I've never said those words to her. I don't give up on people, you know. But she's watched me through her eighteen years and how I've interacted with the world, and what she took away from it. That is what I hope she took away from it. You know that that I I don't giving up on people is something that I it's not a natural thing for me. You know, like I really try to find that. What is that? What is that sparkle in that person that I can connect with? Or, so you know, you're, you're impressed with the way that you that the impression that you've made on your daughter. Yes, you're impressed with the subjective Michael Fallon that your daughter has experienced and 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 describes over the course of her lifetime. Yeah, or in that in that piece of it. Yeah, you know, I know she has other things she'd say. <laughs> right, but. My point is, if you can actually take that in a moment of weakness or in a moment of self-doubt or a moment of something and say to yourself that, you know what, the you right here that's afraid of action or the you right now that's afraid of this, of committing or, or deciding or whatever, actually doesn't exist in the eyes of your daughter. The you that exists in the eyes of your daughter would do what? And then whatever the answer is, just deciding mm. deciding not to let your daughter down so I, I don't know i had an interaction with my daughter a few nights ago that i regret but i don't regret i lost my temper i flew off the handle now i don't i, I raise my voice but i don't i'm not intimidating i'm not you know i don't play any games you know my, my kids understand what anger is and, and they should but my they're not used to a house where there's a lot of yelling that's for sure but we had an interaction where like I was screaming, I was pissed off. And then I thought for a second, like, wait, I'm, I'm looking, I need to look at this through the eyes of a 10 year old girl that loves her father, not the eyes of a 43 year old man who's been on this planet for quite some time. Your daughter is not a person. She's your daughter. She's your princess. You know, she deserves certain right. licenses, especially when she's trying to figure it out. And um, I know I'm being vague, but in any event, it ended with later that night, me going into her room and, and, trying not to tear up while I sat there and apologized to her and let her know that I'm also learning my way through this as your father. Um, I've never had a 10 year old daughter before, much like mm. you've never been 10 years old before. I'm trying to figure this out with you and I'm not, I love you too much to not admit when I've made a mistake at your expense because I love you so much. You need to know that I regret what I did. What's important for, for us is that my daughter's going to model what is acceptable behavior for a man in her life based on how she sees me treat her and her mother. She's also going to model how she supposes a man should be treated based on how I allow myself to be treated, but also how her mother treats me. So she, and, and my son also in, in similar ways. Um, but it's, it's, it's setting the example that's really the critical, most important part.